coming to you from the Motor City. On today's episode, we're talking gunshot wounds. The doctors will take you through the myths and realities of gunshot wounds, learn about the basics, what can actually be determined from them, and much more on Detroit's Daily Docket. Hello, my name is Dr. Lachman Sung, and this is Detroit's Daily Docket. I want to thank all of our listeners who have been taking this journey with us and all of those who have joined us on Instagram. If you are new to this podcast, we are forensic pathologists at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office in Detroit, Michigan. Our goal is to bridge the gap between forensic pathology and the community at large. We have conversations with each other about key forensic pathology topics and use high-profile cases to cement these concepts. We dispel misconceptions that you might have about forensics, talk with our team members, and have them tell you about their roles. We'll go over relevant health issues like COVID-19 and also answer some of the questions you send to us. In this episode, Dr. Reyes and I are going to cover firearms, firearm injuries, and draw distinctions between the myths that people have about firearms and reality some of the things we can tell you, and other things that go beyond our expertise. But before we start this discussion, we want to emphasize that we have no political agendas. We are not advocating for or against firearms. However, it's really not possible to present this topic without mentioning brand names or commonplace products that everyone is familiar with. Now, I do want to emphasize that we have no financial relationships with any of them, and it's strictly used to provide you with a point of reference, and it's not to be misconstrued as an endorsement. With all of that out of the way, the first thing that we are going to start with are gunshot entrance wounds and exit wounds. Dr. Reyes, can you walk us through some of their key features? Hello. Yes. To put things very simply, by and large, an entrance wound is where a bullet enters or goes into the body and an exit wound is where a bullet comes out. As far as the bullet itself, when it enters, it can completely pass through a body and create an exit wound, or it can be retained within the body. So you mean that every gunshot wound has an entrance component, but not all of them have exits? Correct. When we count the total number of gunshot wounds a person sustains, we try to match entrances with exits. For each single entrance, there is either an exit wound or a bullet retained in the body. For example, you have a person who is shot and we recover the bullet. That person has only one gunshot wound. Also, a person who sustains a through-and-through gunshot wound where there is both an entrance and an exit wound That person also has one gunshot wound. Now, Dr. Reyes, something that I'm asked all the time when I'm testifying in court is, how do you tell the difference between an entrance wound and an exit wound? What are the characteristics that you look for? Well, there are always atypical cases, but for the most part, the two are fairly easy to separate. When a bullet strikes the skin and enters the body, it does a few things. First, because bullets are round, it will create a round entrance wound. 
Second, bullets are not sharp. As it punches its way into the body, the margins of the entrance wound are abraded. And third, the bullet destroys the skin and soft tissue at the point of impact. Because actual tissue is lost, you cannot push the edges of the skin back together. Or as we say, you cannot reapproximate the tissue edges. These features are different from exit wounds. As the bullet travels through the body, it will lose energy. If it has enough energy to exit the body, the bullet pushes and tears the skin apart. Unlike the entrance wound, the torn skin edges of the exit wound can be reapproximated. Also, the exit wound is not round and the margins are not abraded as with the entrance wounds. This brings up two things to mind. The first is with a person who has multiple gunshot wounds and how we number those gunshot wounds. And the second deals with wound tracks. Okay, let me cover multiple gunshot wounds and you can talk about the wound tracks. All right, why don't you go first? Okay, many of the firearm homicides that we see have more than one gunshot wound. There are no defined rules or standards on how to number them. So it's up to the individual medical examiner. What I do is pretty straightforward. I simply start at the top and go down. So a gunshot wound to the head might be number one. A second wound to the chest would be number two. And a third to the leg would be number three. Sometimes it may be easier to aggregate numbers based on regions. For example, if a person has five gunshot wounds to the chest and three to the arm, the gunshot wounds would be number one through number five on the chest and then number six, seven, and eight on the arm. The numbers are arbitrary and used to make describing the wounds easier and more logical. I want to emphasize that the gunshot wound numbering does not, and I want to repeat, does not reflect the order in which they were sustained. We're not able to tell the sequence that a living body was shot. Once again, we're not saying that gunshot wound number one happened first, gunshot wound number two happened second, etc. Also, the number of gunshot wounds we count doesn't reflect the number of shots fired. Sometimes a single bullet can pass through one part of the body and then re-enter a different part. If you recall, in the autopsy of Michael Brown, the young man who was shot by police in Ferguson, Missouri, his autopsy indicated that he was shot at least six times and up to eight times. The reason for that ambiguity is that some of the gunshot wounds may have been caused by the same bullet. Specifically, his body had a gunshot wound through the right arm and another gunshot wound in the right chest. It's entirely possible that the bullet that exited the right arm re-entered the right chest. Now, if we go back a little bit, you said that we are not able to tell the order of fire in a living body. What did you mean by that? So when a living person sustains an injury, the body has a reaction to it. It's called the vital reaction. In fact, we covered it briefly in episode 4. Because the heart is pumping, an injury will bleed, and blood can be seen in the surrounding tissue. In the post-mortem state, 
the heart has stopped and additional injuries to it will not have vital reaction. It won't be hemorrhagic. So, in the case of a gunshot wound, if a dead body is shot, you will not see that tissue bleeding. Right. The hemorrhage can be pretty helpful in following a bullet's wound track through the body, and it also helps when we recover bullets. And that brings me to the bullet wound tracks. This is an area that is frequently asked about in court also. It can be confusing and may be and actually may not be that helpful. And let me explain why. We describe wound tracks based on the standard anatomical position. What that is, is imagine a person who is facing you and standing directly in front of you. This person has their arms down to their sides, hands open, and palms facing forward. That's the anatomical position. So when we say something such as the wound tract was from front to back, right to left, and downward, it is referencing that body as it is standing in the anatomical position. Obviously, people don't go around walking and standing in the anatomical position. So the wound tracks and directions that we put into our autopsy reports do not indicate the position of the shooter or the decedent when the gunshot wounds were sustained. The autopsy doesn't tell you if the decedent was standing, crouching, or bending. It can't tell you if the shooter was standing above the decedent, to the left, to the right, or anything else. Sometimes there are associated injuries on the body that allow us to generate an opinion, but many times there isn't. I'll give you an example. Say person A is walking, and person B jumps out in front of them, brandishing a gun. Person A covers their face with their hands, and then person B shoots person A. The bullet strikes the back of the right hand, exits the palm, strikes the face of person A, and then exits the back of the head. This gives us two gunshot wounds. Once again, using arbitrary numbering, gunshot wound number one is a through-and-through gunshot wound to the face, meaning it entered and exited the head. It has a wound track that was front to back. Gunshot wound number two was a through-and-through gunshot wound to the right hand. Now, the wound track for number two would be back to front. The reason for this is because when the hand is in the anatomical position, the palm is facing forward. You have to remember that everyone that we examine is laying down on the autopsy table, and we have no idea about how their body or body parts were positioned when they were alive. Once again, the wound track is going from back of the hand forward through the palm as the hand is in the anatomical position. That way we standardize everything when we use the anatomical position. Dr. Reyes, I think before we go further, why don't we take a minute to describe the basic parts of a weapon for those of our listeners who are not familiar with firearms? Sure. Let's limit this to man-portable weapons and not talk about ones that you see mounted to vehicles, helicopters, and ships. There are two main categories of firearms, handguns and long guns. Handguns are essentially designed to be held by one or both hands and fired, and examples of these can be revolvers and pistols. For the revolvers, think of the Old West and the Colts and Smith & Wessons that the gun slingers had. Semi-automatic pistols have become much more common today, and examples of those include Glock, Beretta, and Sig Sauer. 
On the other hand, long guns are designed to be held by both hands and have a stock that is supported by the shoulder. There are many different configurations, but examples of long guns include shotguns, classic hunting rifles, and very popular today are the AR-style rifles. Some of the most common shotguns are the pump-action Remington 870 and Mossberg 500. Some classic hunting rifle manufacturers are Winchester, Savage, and Marlin. For the AR-style rifles, there seems to be so many manufacturers. Commonly known ones are Colt, Bushmaster, Daniel Defense, and Smith & Wesson. Despite the many different forms and configurations of firearms, they all have some basic parts, and those include the grip, chamber, trigger, barrel, and muzzle. The grip, or area that is gripped, is what the shooter's dominant hand holds on to. The ammunition is loaded into the chamber. The trigger is what is actuated, pulled, or squeezed by the shooter to discharge the weapon. The projectile in the ammunition will travel down the barrel, which is essentially a hollow tube. Now, most of the barrels, with the exception of shotguns, have grooves that are cut or formed into the inside of them that are twisted either to the left or to the right. Once again, the cut portions are called grooves, the raised portions are called lands, and the aggregate of the two is known as rifling. This rifling has macro and micro details that are unique to each firearm, and when a bullet passes through the barrel, the size of the bullet takes on these details and can act as fingerprints that is specific to that gun. Lastly, the very end of the barrel is the muzzle. Okay, with that out of the way, let's cover range of fire. This, once again, is something that we are often asked about in court. Range of fire is the distance between muzzle, uh, which, as Dr. Sung said, is the very end of the barrel and the skin of the decedent. If that muzzle is pressed against the skin, that would be a contact gunshot wound. In examining the contact entrance wound, you would look for an abrasion that was caused by the muzzle as it is pressed against the skin, and we call that the muzzle abrasion or muzzle imprint. With this type of wound, the gases that escape the gun go into the wound track. If there is a separation between the muzzle and the skin, then you won't have the muzzle abrasion. If you extend that distance to, say, up to three feet, then you might find soot or stippling on the skin. Both of these are a reflection of the gun powder that is used to propel the bullet or projectile. As the gunpowder is ignited, it rapidly forces the bullet through the barrel. As it's consumed, the gun smoke may be deposited on the skin as soot, and the burning or unburnt grains of gunpowder may strike the skin. As a distinction, Soot is on the surface of the skin and can be wiped away, but the gunpowder that strikes the skin creates actual injury that cannot be wiped away, and we call that stippling. If either soot or stippling is present, then that gunshot wound is classified as close range. 
Some references draw distinctions between loose contact, near contact, and intermediate ranges, but we will leave this discussion as close range. That brings up a good point about close range gunshot wounds that I think is important to highlight. We give an approximate distance of three feet or less for seeing evidence of close range firing. It is important to underscore the word approximate. There are so many variables that can influence the presence of soot and or stippling. For example, the length of a firearm's barrel. A longer barrel allows a more complete combustion of gunpowder than a shorter one, which in turn may decrease the probability of seeing stippling. Different gunpowders have different rates of burn. Different manufacturers use different powders in their loads. Weather conditions such as rain, wind, or snow can be another factor. And the decedent may be wearing clothing that filters out the soot and gunpowder from reaching the skin. All of these things can affect evidence of close-range firing, so it is really impossible for a medical examiner to give an exact range of fire when performing an autopsy. You mentioned Michael Brown earlier. Mr. Brown had six to eight gunshot wounds to the head, chest, right arm and forearm, and right hand. But only the gunshot wound to the hand was close range. Why was that? I do not have an answer, but it could be that they were all close range, but only the one to the hand showed evidence of it. Or possibly the right hand was outstretched and was closer to the police officer that shot him. These can't be answered by the autopsy. That's right, Dr. Reyes. The absence of close range firing doesn't mean the shooting wasn't close range. There just isn't anything on the skin that shows that it was. Dr. Sung, you also said that clothing can act as a filter. Sometimes firearm injuries can be unpredictable and not behave as you would expect. We've had cases where a regular thin t-shirt filtered nearly all the suit and gunpowder, but there are also some well-known cases where even heavier clothing did not filter as expected. The one that comes to my mind is the death of Trayvon Martin in 2012. To summarize the chain of events, Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old high school student who was out walking on the evening of February 26 of 2012 in Sanford, Florida. There is video footage of Trayvon Martin in a convenience store buying a packet of Skittles and iced tea. And a little after 7 p.m. that night, he was seen walking in a gated community called Retreat at Twin Lakes. It just so happened that this community had dealt with eight break-ins and thefts in the past 15 months and had formed a neighborhood watch. George Zimmerman was appointed their coordinator in September of 2011. On that night in February, Zimmerman reported to the police that he saw a suspicious person in the housing community. Zimmerman was told not to approach the person, but he did. Moments later, neighbors reported hearing a gunshot and Trayvon Martin was dead. I bring this case up because Trayvon Martin was wearing a hooded sweatshirt when he was shot. I don't know how thick it was, but it was likely similar to any standard hoodie. On autopsy, Martin had an entrance wound to the left chest, which had soot and stippling. 
I would not have expected much of soot and gunpowder to have passed through the hoodie, but the autopsy showed otherwise. Do you have any opinions about that, Dr. Song? Yes, Dr. Reyes. It is a little difficult. Regarding the autopsy, I agree with the autopsy report. The medical examiner listed the range as intermediate. We call that close range here, but that's not a critical difference. What I'm going to say next goes beyond the autopsy, and it's just my opinion. For the range of fire, it had to be very close, likely within inches. I say this for a couple of reasons. The firearm that was used by George Zimmerman was a Keltec PF9 9mm handgun. This is a fairly compact handgun with a barrel length of just over 3 inches. It can be fired at long ranges, but it's definitely designed for short-range accuracy. The main area of stippling on Trayvon Martin's chest was only about 2 inches, and that most likely indicates that the grains of gunpowder didn't have much distance or time to spread out. If the range was further, you would expect a wider area of stippling. Also, at increasing distances, the material of the hoodie would likely stop the gunpowder grains because those grains individually are very light, and as they fly through the air, it wouldn't take much to stop them. Another possibility is that the muzzle of the Keltec was very close to the hoodie, and when the handgun went off, the explosive gases coming out of the muzzle ripped a hole in the hoodie, allowing for the gunpowder grains to pass unhindered to the chest of Trayvon. Either way, the range was very close. Now, in saying that, I do have to reiterate what Dr. Reyes said range of fire represents. We give an approximation of about three feet for seeing evidence of close-range firing, meaning soot and or stippling. But you have to remember that three feet is the distance from the muzzle of the weapon to the skin of the decedent. It doesn't mean three feet from the shooter's body to the decedent. The firearm itself has length. For example, the minimum overall length of a standard rifle or shotgun is 26 inches, which is slightly over 2 feet. So if you add 2 feet of length of the weapon and approximately 3 feet distance for close-range firing, that puts the separation between the shooter and the victim at 5 feet or so. That also applies to handguns. At most, a handgun would be held at arm's length, so you have to add the length of the shooter's arm, the length of the handgun barrel, and the approximate 3 feet. I don't know George Zimmerman's arm length, but he is reported to be 5'7". Now, I happen to be 5'7", and when I take a traditional two-handed grip on a handgun, the distance between the muzzle and my body is around 2 feet. Once again, 2 feet plus the 3 for close-range firing gives you 5 feet. So, George Zimmerman could have been only a few inches from Trayvon Martin, or up to 5 feet or so from the teenager when he was shot. Yes, close-range gunshot wounds can be complicated. To wrap up range of fire with something easier, we have distant gunshot wounds. With distant gunshot wounds, there is no soot and there is no stippling on the skin. There are no characteristics about the wound that lends any characterization of the distance. It could be 5 feet, 50 feet, or 500 feet. There is just no way to tell. So, as a review, contact range is where the muzzle is pressed up against the skin. Close range is up to approximately 3 feet, and distant is any distance greater than 3 feet. 
Dr. Sun, in keeping with our theme of dispelling myths, there is this persistent impression that the size of the entrance wound can be used to tell the caliber of a bullet. Have you ever come across this? Although I've never witnessed this myself, I've heard stories of old medical examiners putting their ungloved fingers into entrance wounds and claiming they could tell the caliber of a bullet by which finger they were using, pinky, ring finger, middle finger, or index. Like I said, I have never seen this, nor do I intend to try. I think, at best, you can only make sweeping generalities, which are pretty much common sense. A smaller, non-deformed bullet will most likely make a smaller hole than a larger, non-deformed bullet. The size of the hole that a bullet creates depends on the part of the body that it strikes and the quality of the skin at that location. Skin thicknesses and how tight or how loose skin is differs from location to location. For example, the skin of the chest is thinner than the skin of the soles of the feet. So a gunshot entrance wound on the chest would have a different diameter than a gunshot entrance created by the same bullet would if it was to the foot. Another example are gunshot wounds to the armpit where the skin there is much looser and offers more resistance to penetration than in an area of tight skin. And to add to that, skin itself has natural elasticity and the hole that a bullet creates there in the armpit would be of a smaller diameter than if it was created in tight skin. In fact, I've seen some small entrance wounds that were created by very sizable bullets. Therefore, you can't take a measurement of a gunshot entrance wound and translate that to a bullet caliber. We've already mentioned it a few times, but can you go over what bullet caliber is? Sure. If you think about movies and television shows that you've seen, you've probably heard terms like 357 Magnum, 44 Magnum, 9mm, 22, and 45 talked about when guns are involved. Those numbers are referencing the caliber of a firearm. If you think back to the barrel of a firearm, it's essentially a long, hollow tube. The inside diameter of the barrel is called the bore, and that measurement is the caliber. Now, if I've lost some of you in that explanation, although it's not entirely correct, it's far easier to understand caliber if you talk about the bullets. However, to understand bullets, let me first deconstruct a cartridge or a round of ammunition. A bullet and a round are commonly used as interchangeable terms, but they're really not. A round of ammunition is the complete intact unit that is loaded into a gun and is fired. That round has a bullet, gunpowder, cartridge case, and a primer. When you pull the trigger on a gun, a firing pin in the gun strikes the round's primer. The primer ignites the gunpowder that's in the case. The gunpowder then burns and propels the bullet down the barrel of the gun and into the target. When we perform autopsies, we recover only the bullet. If you take a non-deformed bullet and measure its greatest diameter, that's essentially the caliber. It is either in millimeters or in hundreds of an inch. So a 22 caliber bullet is 22 hundredths of an inch in diameter. A 9mm bullet is 9mm, and a 45 caliber bullet is 45 hundredths of an inch in diameter. On the whole, a firearm of a specific caliber can only fire bullets of that caliber. So a 45 caliber bullet cannot be fired by a 9mm handgun. 
My recommendation in describing bullets in the autopsy is to be more general and to focus on the wounds themselves because that is where our expertise lies. Unless you're trained and certified in firearm and bullet analysis, I think you are best served simply describing the bullets as intact, deformed, jacketed, or not jacketed. I don't suggest you comment on a caliber of a bullet. I've read forensic textbooks that recommend pathologists carry calipers to help them measure bullets. I think this practice can insert some unnecessary degree of uncertainty. There are many nuances to bullets. For example, the diameter of a 9mm bullet is 9mm or 0.355 inches. And a 38 special bullet and 357 magnum bullet are both 0.357 inches. But this is describing pristine bullets. Many of the projectiles we recover are deformed, mangled, and or fragmented. What you don't want to do is provide a simple measurement that might be misconstrued by a person not so familiar with bullets. Other references recommend using categories such as small, medium, and large caliber. But even then, there is frequent argument about which bullet to put into which category. For example, I've seen 32 caliber bullets listed as small caliber in one reference and medium in another. That's why I think it's better to let the crime labs decide that information. Speaking of crime labs, after we recover bullets, they are turned over to the police under chain of custody. Many of those bullets are analyzed by the Michigan State Police. How does the crime lab process the bullet? Our bullets are processed by the Firearm and Toolmark Unit of the Michigan State Police. I've worked with Detective Lieutenant Jeff Amley on a number of experiments and papers that I've published, and he's stationed at the Lansing Forensic Laboratory. I contacted him, and he walked me through the process. He said if there is only a single recovered bullet without a firearm or other fired bullets to compare to, they take the weight and dimensions of that bullet and determine its caliber. They also look at what is known as the class rifling characteristics. Those are the macro and micro details I spoke about earlier that reflects the lands and grooves and twists of a barrel's rifling. These pieces of information can help narrow things down to a small group of firearm manufacturers and aid in the investigation. If two or more fired bullets are submitted, the caliber and class rifling characteristics of the two can be compared to each other to identify them or eliminate them as having been fired from the same firearm. If a bullet from the body is recovered and there is a suspected firearm, Michigan State Police will conduct the classification examination on the bullet first because if the recovered bullet is, say, a 45 caliber bullet and the suspected firearm is a 9mm, then that firearm is eliminated based on caliber difference. If the calibers are similar, then they move on to the other characteristics. Now, Dr. Reyes, I'd like to get your opinion on a scenario that has happened to me. Let's say a gunshot victim's family comes into your office and asks you about a bullet's quote-unquote stopping power. What would you say to them? Well, this is one of the perpetual debates and myths that people have. 
For handguns, it's mostly not an issue in our profession. In examining terminal ballistics, as a bullet goes through tissue, it creates tissue destruction along the path that it travels. This is called permanent wound cavity, meaning that the tissue is destroyed along that path. However, there is another cavity called the temporary cavity. For this cavity, when the bullet goes through the tissue and energy dissipates from it in a radial fashion, the tissue is pushed aside and when the bullet and energy passes, the tissue bounces back and the temporary cavity goes away. Now, the debate amongst handgun enthusiasts is which caliber is better, 9mm or 45 caliber? Yes, the 45 caliber bullet is physically larger and more massive than the 9mm, but the permanent cavity left by the two is not significantly different. A hole through the brain, heart, lungs, or liver is severe and it does not matter if it was caused by a 9mm or 45 caliber bullet. Regarding temporary cavities, the ones created by the 9mm versus the 45 caliber bullets are also not significantly different. The temporary cavities that are most significant are in non-elastic organs, such as the liver, kidneys, and spleen. But handguns bullets typically do not produce temporary cavities that are significantly large enough to create remote injuries in other organs, meaning a gunshot wound to the liver will not create sufficient damage to the adjacent kidney regardless of the handgun caliber. As it is, we cannot look at a wound track and tissue injury and tell you the caliber of bullet that created it. In the end, I would tell the victim's family that stopping power is a myth and television and movie magic. What is more important than bullet caliber is where the bullet struck the body. Dr. Sung, let me give you a scenario. How do you handle cases of multiple gunshot wounds as far as lethality, specifically in a court when a lawyer, typically the defense attorney, asks you about which gunshot wound was the fatal one. How do you phrase your answer? Well, for me, it's pretty straightforward. When it comes to decedents with multiple gunshot wounds, all of the gunshot wounds are fatal wounds because it's my opinion that we need to look at all of the wounds in totality. And I'll give you two examples of what I mean. The first is of Gabrielle Giffords. Now, to be clear, Gabrielle Giffords is not dead, and there is no autopsy report. I'm using news reports to illustrate a point. Giffords held offices in Arizona House of Representatives, Arizona Senate, and U.S. House of Representatives for Arizona's 8th District from 2007 to 2012. In 2011, Giffords had a public forum called Congress on the Corner where she could interact with her constituents. During the gathering, Jared Lee Loeffner ran up with the Glock 19 and began firing. He struck 19 people, killing six of them. He did shoot Gabby Giffords, and her entrance wound was on the back of her head. The bullet traveled completely through the left hemisphere of her brain and exited her left forehead above the left eye. Miraculously, she survived. 
Without a doubt, gunshot wounds to the head are devastating injuries, and it brings up three similar words in mind. Deadly, lethal, and fatal. These are not exact definitions, but something that is deadly means that it's able to kill a person. Lethal is something that can cause death, and fatal is the thing that actually does cause a person's death. Gunshot wounds to the head are definitely deadly and lethal, but it is not necessarily fatal, as in the case of Gabby Gifford. My point is that gunshot wounds that are seemingly fatal may in fact not be, and the converse is also true. Gunshot wounds that may look insignificant can be fatal ones. And this leads me to my second example, and that's the death of Christopher George Latour Wallace. Wallace was best known as the notorious B.I.G. or Biggie Smalls. He was very influential in the hip-hop and gangster rap genres. This greatly simplifies the chain of events, but in 1991, Tupac Shakur debuted his album, Tupacalypse Now, and Wallace came out with a single in 1993. It was reported that the two were friends, but on November 30, 1994, Tupac was shot on his way to meet Biggie Smalls and Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Tupac survived the shooting, and for reasons that I'm not aware of, Tupac thought Biggie had a hand in the shooting. There was already an East Coast-West Coast hip-hop rivalry, and when Tupac signed with Death Row Records in California, and Biggie Smalls joined New York-based Bad Boy Records, the feud cemented. On September 7, 1996, Tupac Shakur was shot in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas and died six days later from what is believed to be gang-related. Six months after that, on March 9, 1997, the notorious B.I.G. was the front seat passenger of a suburban traveling northbound on Fairfax in Los Angeles when he was shot in a drive-by shooting. Wallace's autopsy showed four gunshot wounds. Gunshot wound number one was to the left forearm, number two was to the back, number three was through the left thigh, and number four went through the chest. Of the four gunshot wounds, gunshot wounds number one through three were through the muscle only and listed as non-fatal on the autopsy report, while the fourth perforated the liver, colon, heart, and lungs and was listed as fatal, once again, on the autopsy report. I'm sure as you're listening to Biggie Small's wounds, you will likely agree that gunshot wound number four was fatal. Some people would minimize the effects of the other three to the point of ignoring them as insignificant and not relevant. However, if you remember... A fatal wound is the one that actually caused death, meaning Biggie was alive before the injury and dead after. What medical examiners don't know is the order in which Wallace was shot. The shot to the chest may have been the last wound, but it is equally likely that it was the first. While gunshot wounds to the heart and lungs are deadly, they are not necessarily fatal, just like a gunshot wound to the head is not necessarily fatal. So it may be that the notorious B.I.G. was shot in the chest but didn't immediately die, and when he sustained the other gunshot wounds, albeit only through tissue, they were the proverbial straws that broke the camel's back, and Biggie died after them. If you're still not convinced, let's alter the scenario to a pedestrian with the exact same four gunshot wounds. 
Yes, the gunshot wound to the chest is more devastating and more immediately life-threatening than the other three, and you may still think the other three are not relevant. But what if the pedestrian got shot in the leg first? That would make the pedestrian unable to run away and gives the shooter all the time in the world to continue shooting. If that was the case, then the gunshot wound to the leg is extremely relevant. Once again, we cannot tell which gunshot wound happened first. Because of this, it's better to say that all of the gunshot wounds in totality cause death. Don't single out one and diminish the others. That's also important in cases where there are multiple defendants. Dr. Song, in your example of a pedestrian being killed by multiple gunshot wounds, if there were multiple shooters as expert witnesses, it's our responsibility to detail the injuries, uh, not to determine the level of responsibility that each of the shooters had in the killing. That is up to the jury. If we could switch gears, I want to dive into a controversial area, and that is manner of death. Clearly, everyone agrees that gunshot wound deaths are not natural, but there are frequent disagreements between homicide, suicide, and accident. Dr. Reyes, can you go over your thought processes in determining manner of death? Okay, let's eliminate the obvious ones. If a person walks into a movie theater and opens fire... Those deaths are homicide, without question. If a person places the barrel of a gun in their mouth and pulls the trigger, that's a suicide. Those are clear-cut. There are other areas, however, that are not so black and white. Take Russian roulette. This is where someone loads one round into a revolver, spins the revolver's cylinder, points the gun to their head, and pulls the trigger. For most common revolvers, the risk of death is one out of six. These deaths are classified as suicide because the person is volitionally engaging in an activity that has a high probability of death, and it is that risk of death that entices some into playing this deadly game. Another common scenario that is debated is that a person is waving a gun around and it goes off, and a person is killed. There are some that advocate that the manner of death should be an accident here. I disagree with that. It's my opinion that it is a homicide. You might think that the shooter did not intend to kill anyone. That may or may not be true, but in classifying the manner of death, we remove intent from the equation. Homicides are deaths due to another person's action. Regardless of intent, an accident is one where death is unpredictable. In my scenario of a person waving a gun around and a person is shot, it was the actions of the person in possession of the weapon resulted in someone's death. For me, firearm deaths are almost never accidents, but there is a caveat. The caveat is that the firearm must be safe and not discharged when all of its safety mechanisms are engaged, meaning the gun will only fire when the trigger is pulled. A real-world example of this was with the release of the 6-hour P320s. 
the United States Army and Air Force had a competition to replace the M9 Beretta service pistol. It was first announced in 2011, but there were delays and the competition did not start until a few years later. Ultimately, the six hours entry was declared the winner and the full-size version became the M17 and the compact version was designated as the M18. The civilian version is known as P320. Now, the thing about the original P320s was there was a high potential for firing when dropped on a hard surface onto the back edge of its slide. This has been fixed, but if an original P320 was dropped and it's discharged and killed a person, the manner of death there would be an accident. Yes, Dr. Reyes, I agree. There are very few incidences where I would classify a firearm death as an accident. And to wrap this episode up and to include two more scenarios where the public may view the death as an accident, I'd like to talk about hunting-related deaths and deaths that occur when a person is quote-unquote cleaning a firearm. Here in Michigan, and in fact in many parts of the United States, hunting is very popular. And hunting with firearms is definitely a component of that. So in this first scenario, let's say a hunter enters the woods, they see their white-tailed deer, take a shot, and they miss the deer, and it ends up hitting another hunter, and that other hunter dies. Dr. Rez, how do you handle the assignment of manor in those cases? Well, uh, these are accidents to some people, but our forensic definition of homicide is death of someone by others' hands. So that entails that um, although they might be accidents, for us they are homicides, regardless of the intention of the person who fired the gun and caused the fatality uh, with the hunting rifle. And in these cases, calling it homicides does not implicate any criminality um, or wrongdoing or wrongdoing for these cases. Right. When we classify the manner, we are trying to remove intent from the situation. And essentially, the manner of death is used for statistical purposes to put death into different categories. The last scenario is one that I've encountered a couple times where a person is found dead with a gunshot wound and around them are gun cleaning supplies. The family calls me up and they tell me that their loved one was very familiar with guns, they knew everything about guns and they went to clean them and then they shot themselves and died. And the difficulty is the family members and the public very likely would classify this as an accident. However, I have a different opinion. For myself, I place these deaths as suicide. And the hard part about suicide is that it has a strong social stigma to it. Now, for the forensic pathologist, the manner of death, once again, is removed of intent. The classification of manner simply means that the person's actions resulted in their own death. It does not provide any explanation as to whether or not the person 
who was found dead knew that the firearm was loaded or, under their own volition, placed the ammunition in the firearm and discharged it into their person. It simply means their actions resulted in their own death. So that's why we classify those as suicide. And like I said, because of the social stigmas of the word suicide, it can be something that is very difficult for family members to accept. This only covers the very surface of firearm injuries. There's so many other things that we didn't talk about today, such as shotguns and all the complications of shotgun wounds, things such as ricochet bullets and falling bullets. Having a well-rounded understanding of firearms, ammunition, and bullets, and ballistics gives us a greater appreciation of the complexities of this area of forensic pathology. I hope you enjoyed our time together for this episode. Please come back and join us for the final episode of Season 1, where we will take a pathologist's view of Jeffrey Dahmer and the murders surrounding this man. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening. <laughs>